Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. At Truth in Movies, we're committed to helping you discover more great movies which is why we've teamed up with the BFI to bring you an exclusive membership deal. As a listener to Truth in Movies, you can get £5 off a year's membership when you join the BFI by 31st of August 2019. That's a year's worth of amazing cinema from just £32. Join today and you'll also enjoy priority booking for the BFI London Film Festival in partnership with American Express, as well as free tickets to BFI South Bank, special members' events, discounts with the BFI shop and BFI player. So, whether you're keen to explore the 90s young cinema rebel season, the golden age of Mexican cinema, or the BFI's upcoming Monty Python season, now is the perfect time to join. Simply enter the code LWL at www.bfi.org.uk forward slash member offers. Today, on a very special episode of Truth and Movies, we're diving into the Little White Lies list of 100 mould-breaking British movies. Stay tuned for highlights and insights from our panel of industry experts. Coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Welcome podcast listeners, it's Michael Leader here in the host chair, sitting across from a really great collection of guests today. We have editor David Jenkins of hey White Lies fame. We also have Will Fowler, film archivist and curator at the British Film Institute, co-author with Vic Pratt of The Bodies Beneath, an investigation into the flip side of British film and television. Will, welcome to the Hello show. Hello there. And also Rowan Woods, film programme manager at the British Film Council industry programme with London Film Festival, an all-round consultant, industry veteran who's worked on every stage of the sausage-making process behind UK film over the years. Rowan, welcome. Hi. So first of all, we're going to dive into this top 100 shortly. But first, David, tell us why we're here. The man behind the list, what was the thinking? For this issue of the magazine, we what we tend to do is have a film on the cover and within the print edition, the editorial is kind of some directly about the film, but some sort of inspired by what the film is doing or saying or what type of film it is. So you kind of get a little carte blanche on what direction you take it. And the film we've got on the cover is called The Souvenir mm. by Joanna Hogg. So this film is coming out at the end of August and it stars Anna Swinton Byrne and Tom Burke and it's a, a kind of autobiographical film. And Joanna Hogg is just someone who... is She's someone who makes the films that she wants to make. And there's something inherently interesting about that. And I think it got us asking this question about what is the British art house? What does that look like? Do we have a tradition of art film in the UK where we have directors who are able to have some semblance of freedom and creativity and making work that isn't sort of jerry-built for multiplexes or for mass public consumption, awkward films films for perhaps only a very, very small audience, maybe 
just the political left, often the political left, very rarely the political right, I think. And it kind of took us on this journey of trying to look at who have been the real innovators. I guess the films that we included on the list in the end Uh, Just to add that it's a chronological list that kind of covers over a century of film. And we were trying to look at the things that, you know, almost sort of sparked off a mini wave. I think that the the main criteria was like sparking off a mini wave or is a kind of complete one off in its own right. Some directors, people like Peter Greenaway or Derek Jarman made tons of films that would have all worked on this list. We also limited it to one film per director, so we were trying to also pick something that was representative of personal canons as well. And yeah, that was that was kind of how the list arose. And like, I think it's a mix of of, of quite obscure things mm-hmm. that we've kind of dug up and researched and found anew for ourselves, and sort of slightly more kind of mainstream crossover things that show you know new talents, people willing to 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 sort of take existing formats in new directions so that's kind of where it all comes from really so many themes and threads arising indeed already i mean we we've got to dive straight into this list haven't we absolutely So, Will, what jumped out at you about the Solicitor films? Just a sort of general observation. I was really struck by, in the past, having looked at kind of, I suppose, more kind of classically top or best 100 British films lists, is that many of those kind of titles are very familiar and almost the context in which they sit are in relationship to each other, if that makes sense. So you seeing like Get Carter or sort of a number of Michael Caine films or it's like Wicker Man, or, they all speak to each other within the context of that canon, whereas it, what was really interesting for me looking at this list is that there's all these different contexts they all spark at each other and don't necessarily talk to each other that much. So you could almost get quite lost in this. And I, you know, I've seen a reasonable amount of these films because it's very much the area that I mm. sort of focus on um, in part at the BFI. But you know, I've found my brain sort of fizzing with the sparks just by putting these things together. So I found that quite a sort of tantalising yeah. thing by looking at the list overall. And you know, with that in mind, in, in many ways, that lots of things sort of jumped out. But I have, for a long time, been interested in this thing of like, yeah, what whatever happened to the British art movie? And I even at one point wanted to do a program around that. But you know, you mentioned Peter Greenaway and Derek Jarman, and there, and perhaps Sally Potter as well. You could include in that they are filmmakers who sort of came of age in the 1980s when there was a crossover of that kind of art movie. So there'd been this kind of more overtly leftist, more overtly underground type of practice going through the 1970s, which was maybe kind of more radical in certain respects and and connected to a very particular audience. And then that, I'd sort of been fascinated with that time gradually through the 1980s where things change and the audiences change. And it almost may be a flipping point between the early 80s and the late 80s, but... I often, you know, I often say that, you know, my my auntie knows who Derek Jarman is. I remember mm-hmm. her saying, she, whereas she's probably, I mean, she might know who Peter Greenaway is, but probably in this list, that's the somehow because he was on television so much, he was mm-hmm. so charismatic and such a good speaker, so he a- enabled this kind of crossover in part, and he was responding more to the times in which he was working. But yeah, with Peter Greenaway, I remember as a kid, my friend's dad, who was in the police, previously been in the army, he had, I can't remember if he'd bought it or they'd rented the cook, the thief, his wife and his lover. And I remember he had some, I should be careful what I say, but he, you know, he had some like photo of sort of nudes on the top shelf when he's like, so I was kind of, oh, is this some kind of sexy film or like, this is like an adult art movie and this sort of collision of like eroticism and 
being sort of adult, but also sophisticated as well. These things seem to hover around that. And I think the title probably helped it, of course, because it sounds kind of salacious and sensational. So I was always like, oh, this is this film. And then I kind of discovered Peter Greenway much later, weirdly, in America, a point when I was trying to see as many films as I could, and someone put this programme on of his 70s shorts, which he was making almost in his spare time when he wasn't working for the Central Office of Information. And I found them really inspiring because they have like no actors in them or anything, and they're, they're just sort of mainly around narration and telling these unusual stories with often just static camera shots of things. And he's he's someone like the American George Cushar who seemed like incredible in that he could use very minimal means and create these like very rich contexts and stories. And for me, they're actually his best films, I think, because they're almost like to use a quite a loaded phrase like alchemy, and that they do so much. So it was ever really interesting to kind of join these two universes together. To go back to that point, yeah, the sort of late 80s, maybe going to the nice of these... I guess, like, maybe Orlando by Sally Potter is another sort of big crossover film. Like, that was written about in Vogue magazine. So you get this point where it's almost, like, sexy and stylish to make these kind of films, which is quite a different time to the 1970s. And I almost wonder whether this sense of the style component that kind of came in almost made it more difficult for other filmmakers. So by getting coverage in things like Vogue other films then have to play to that level. So I almost wonder whether that was this kind of really fascinating moment of crossing over context, but also made it difficult perhaps for other filmmakers or to sustain that type of filmmaking. And that's, you know, some of the people got bigger budgets and the context changed. I feel like that's that's saying quite a lot, but that Greenaway film feels like kind of an interesting passageway of lots yeah. of stuff. So that, that's sort of, that was, that's one thing. And that, you know, all many of what I've, much of what I've just said filters through this list and, in different ways. I don't know if I've got time to mention another film. I've said spoken for. I can maybe come back to me. Let's, let's come back. David, let's what, come back. what's your first film that, you, that jumped out at you? This is a film that I discovered through actually reading a piece in Sight and Sound, which is connected to its recent reissue. It's a film called Night Cleaners, mm-hmm. or The Night Cleaners is sometimes called, made by the Berwick Street Film Collective. So it's an experimental documentary from 1975, and it's kind of... I guess riffing or like I think another thing about this list that we've kind of looked at and I I guess is meant to be a kind of current is how British film connects to European film as well. Mm -hmm. I think there is meant to be a sort of subtle, I'm not saying this is a kind of like anti-Brexit list or anything, but I think there really is a kind of undercurrent of how British film has been inspired by Europe and The Night Cleaners is something that, feels very inspired by Chris Marker and Jean-Luc Godard. It's this amazing film about it is what it's about what it's about. It's about cleaners working in an office block who will do shifts during the day and various jobs and then through the night when the office workers have left the building, they will scrub the toilets and they'll clean the tables and they will essentially not sleep so they can provide for their families. And the first half of the film it kind of focuses on interviews and you see these scenes of, of cleaning and it's all shot on this very, very kind of low-grade black-and-white film that kind of gives it this almost kind of nightmarish horror vibe. And then the second part of the film, it kind of shifts into to, to attempts by feminist union groups to unionise the, the night cleaners and the conversations that occur and... It ends up being a film about these two worlds colliding of like political power and these working class shift workers who, you know, very kind of scraping by 
don't really have any interest in political empowerment. And it ends up being a film about how can you make people interested in their own, in the sort of wider ramifications of their own lives and their own professional success. And it's fascinating as a film that you could sort of spin, see it as a left-wing film in that it's about the early feminist movement and it's about the unions and it's about how they worked. But it's not a political film. It's not a film that is kind of putting forward an agenda. It's not pro or con anything. It's not like a kind of Ken Loach film where it's like, this is, you know, this is what I believe and I'm going to tell you that over and over again. It's about the politics. It's about the kind of the tensions between these two worlds. And it's an amazing film. And it has this kind of arty aesthetic to it where you get these long blank pauses between the sequences you can see the ends of the reels and things like that and like quite a lot of little kind of aesthetic choices being made that maybe nudge this into a more kind of artier domain mm. it is a film that you think wow this feels so relevant and yeah. you know should be more famous than it is Wow, we're getting a sense already of the breadth of this list. Where are we going next, Rowan? Well, I suppose initially just some thoughts on the list Mm. in general. I think it's a really, really fascinating collection of films and I love the idea, as you said, David, of positioning UK cinema within a wider European tradition. And I love the fact, as you said, Will, that you don't find films like Get Carter on there or I think there's one Powell and Pressburger, but it's not. Mm. It's creating this alternative canon of British films. I have to say, I was personally delighted to see um, The Riddles of the Sphinx on Mm. there. Laura Mulvey's film. I mean, I have to say, I find it pretty impenetrable, (laughs) slightly unwatchable. (laughs) But in terms of sort of the impact that someone like Laura Mulvey has had on not so much cinema canon, but certainly on the way we think and talk about the cinematic canon, and certainly the way we sort of write about films. And she established with that essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, the very notion of a male gaze, which Mm. went on to sort of establish a very um, fertile strain of feminist film criticism. Mm. As I say, I do find the film slightly slightly tedious and as it turns out when she sort of went to sort of put all of her um theories into into practice yeah it's worth seeing as an interesting sort of cultural artifact but it's pretty tedious um give me the counter argument well it's interesting talking about night cleaners and the sphinx is that they both have reputations of being difficult films and night cleaners was sort of received with a sort of fear almost by like union workers right. and there was a sense of like who is this film for because it's not a, that wasn't a campaigning film; it was a something else. And with the sinks, I think it is difficult. I'm not going to pretend it isn't. And one of the challenging bits about it is it has points where it has text, and it ends mid sentence, and then it will go into these sort of sweeping pans with this kind of extraordinary electronic music, and then it will like pick up the sentence. So part of you is like, oh, what? I, what? I, I, they've just said this ten minutes short. What was actually being said? So like. I almost feel like with that film, it's best to like relax into it a little yeah. bit. And because, you know, I was very intimidated by film theory in the past. And it's a film that because of this history and because of Lombardi's importance, sort of weighs heavy when you watch it. So you feel like you should understand it and you should have all these, you know, responses. But as I think this is what's interesting about this list is many of these films, if you kind of just take a bit of a deep breath or maybe don't take a deep breath just relax and just allow them to be almost historical artifacts then you know many of them can be experienced in very different ways and night night cleanse has been completely reappraised and you know it feels like a very modern film as you're saying i think willis thinks to me is like i guess that has all this theory and critical thinking going through it but it's almost like a it has quite a sort of cine like more poetic like it's beautifully short, really unusually short. It has like this drama going through it with the family in it and the husband who leaves and this sort of tension around 
childcare and this music by I forget his name from the Soft Machine. But I understand where you're coming from. But it's I think that's a question of I don't know the, the reputations of these films. Yeah, I mean, I th- you know, as you say, it's a work of kind of uncompromising intellect and theory rather mm-hmm. than something you you sort of sit down to watch on a on a narrative level. It occupies an important place in the canon, but yeah, it's we it's, can, it's challenging. We can solve and the riddles of the Sphinx another time. But <laughs> yeah. Lauren, did you have yeah, another film? Yeah, I mean, actually, I'm going to be slightly selfish and choose a handful of films. Okay. Um, sort of more 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 recent work. I was going through the list, and it was so interesting and sort of pleasing to see as you as you start to get into the last sort of 15 years or so work by really key British female directors. So you get something like Andrea Arnold's Red Road, Lynn Ramsey's Morven Caller, which is her second feature, Joanna Hogg's Unrelated, The Arbor by Clio Barnard, Carol Morley's Dreams of a Life. You know, these sort of five British female auteurs who've gone on to now be our pretty much our most five significant directors and something like Red Road which I rewatched in preparation for this is so confident such a confident debut premiered in Cannes and won the jury prize there while I was watching it I was thinking what an interesting double bill or sort of you know part of a mini season that might be with films like Sarah Driver's Sleepwalk mm-hmm. or um, Betty Gordon's Variety or even Jane Campion's In the Cut these films about sort of women in the city and voyeurism and a slightly kind of dangerous search for sex or something that's vaguely sexual. I think it's a really, really, really interesting film. And she tackles quite difficult psychological material in a really, really confident way. And Kate Dickey is an incredibly watchable screen presence. Can I just say one interesting thing about Andrea Arnold is one of the conversations we had about this film was which one of her films to include, because... You have Fish Tank, which is the kind of people's favourite. And you've got Red Road, which is the kind of announcing the talent. And what I maybe think is most interesting of her films is her take on Wuthering Heights, right. which, which I, I was kind of pushing for, but there was pushback on that. What are your take on Wuthering Heights? Which, which one would you have put in? My first instinct would be Fish Tank, because that's my... Actually, it's one of my favourite films ever, and I think is is so sort of perfectly formed. But I do think when you're thinking about films that announce a talent, as so many of the films that you've picked on the list do, they're either a debut or a breakthrough film. And also when you're thinking about positioning British cinema within that wider European context, there's something about Red Road that really does feel quite European. So I think Red Road feels like the right choice. I have to say, I never entirely got on with Wuthering Heights. I really, I really admire it. I, Will, <laughs> you're looking at me in disgust. No, 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 no it's interesting. It's good um, it's, it's I mean, I, it, it's you know, it's, it's a film I really admire, but I didn't quite connect with. I'd love to hear your reasons for trying to for, for oh, why you were pushing. I for mean, that I one. just very simply, I just think it's really difficult and really radical, mm. and and it's a film that is obviously made with a a very unique vision and a very unique read of the material. And I mm. think it's all the best literary adaptations are made like that. I think maybe it's a book I have such, such a connection to and have read it so many times. And sometimes when you have a text like that, that you have such a clear sense of how it should be. If something does come along that's a really radical interpretation of that, it's, it can be hard to sort of fit yourself around that. And I think it's more to do with that and sort of my my own relationship mm. with that text than, than, than anything to do mm. with her filmmaking. I remember thinking it was almost like a dogma film mm. relocated to right. a historical period and... A lot of it is, I don't remember there being that much music mm-hmm. and it's very like visceral. 
And you certainly get some of those dogma elements in Red Road. It was produced by Lars von Trier's production company. I also wanted to talk very briefly about Clio Barnard's The Arbor, which is part of a, a tradition that comes through of artists' work and Andrew Cotting and Steve McQueen and Joe Lawler and Christine Malloy. And I think it was doing something so interesting in the way it sort of harnessed verbatim theatre and coupled that with documentary and sort of creates this distancing effect to, to make you sort of to, to really sort of call into question the veracity of what you're seeing in terms of documentary sort of truthfulness. And it's something that Carol Morley played with a little bit, that crossover between fiction and, and documentary and in Dreams of Life. And then something we're seeing coming through so strongly over the past couple of years, if you think about films like Kitty Green's Casting Jean, Jean Benet or, or The Tale or, mm-hmm. or something like that. It's a really rich space at the moment, I think, that crossover between documentary mm-hmm. and, and fiction. Or even something like um, Notes on Blindness. Which is using uh, lip syncing to archive Mm -hmm. in a really interesting way. But I think in terms of being something that announces a really, really singular vision and someone who's doing something that's so resolutely in an art house space and within a slightly more kind of European tradition, I think the Arbour feels Mm. incredibly, incredibly significant. Personally, I find it really fascinating. You said, Will, that there is a tendency towards this, less towards maybe perhaps more difficult or avant-garde experimental films. There are also some very straight-down-the-line mm. enjoyable genre films here of, of a type that the UK doesn't tend to make anymore, going all the way back to The Day the Earth Caught Fire, the Val Guest disaster movie of, of the Strand literally like melting, and all the way up to Richard Stanley's Hardware, which is the best 2000 AD adaptation that was stolen from 2000 AD. There's a film also that I wrote about in the issue, which sounds like it's the most experimental thing but is so immediately impressive and that's Len Lies A Colour Box from 1935 which is a short, short, short animated film a piece of direct animation where Len Lai who's a, who's a New Zealand-born animator would directly score and colour onto celluloid and then project and it's this fizzing, popping, calypso soundtrack piece of music that was funded and this is where some of the broader themes of the list come in funded by John Grierson's GPO film unit and it's this avant-garde piece of animation all the way up to the end where suddenly amongst the lines and and colours appear slogans for the post office's competitive parcel package prices. There's another film in the list, Carol Wright's We Are the Lambeth Boys, Mm -hmm. which is a kind of documentary that he made prior to all his other sort of bigger British New Wave films. And that is a similar thing. It's like funded by Ford Motor Company. Yeah. It's a kind of like social experiment film about this way of life in, in South London. And that's a recurring narrative for many of these filmmakers, many of whom we've spoken about, who have these great debuts or great calling card films. They worked for many years in TV, in commercial film, in music videos. Talk about Jonathan Glazer, talk about Joanna Hogg, these people at Clive Barnard who had very different careers up until they announced themselves fully formed or figured out the tricks of the trade that allowed them to present their voice on film. And it's interesting, someone like Len Lai is very mm-hmm. much received as a classic filmmaker and an artist filmmaking tradition. And yet, as you say, there is the sponsorship component mm-hmm. to many, but, you know, pop videos and music videos and other forms are not. There is interest in that, but they, there's almost no question. Or it, that's a very tentative thing to explore, putting it into a different context, whereas mm-hmm. somehow with Len Lai, people must forget that there's like the little slogan at the yeah. end or just think, oh, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> Whereas like, these things do exist in context and, you know, there is possible for creativity in all sorts of you know, arenas. So. Yeah. 
Will, you said you had more to talk about. What's what more more threads, films, and things? Um, well, you're talking about thrillers. Actually, yeah. I was. I mean, I, I watched Hell Drivers not so long ago, and that's a pretty extraordinary film. I mean, that's very speedy, racy mm-hmm. thriller, I guess, about workers delivering or transporting. I think it's um, gravel, gravel, and coal and things, and these giant trucks, and they basically kind of have to do it within a certain time mm-hmm. span. And, you know, I'm very captivated by Patrick McGowan as a kind of unusual, forceful actor. And he's so visceral in that. And, you know, he froze. He is. I mean, he like froze what's his name to the floor when you think that's really that hurt, you know. (laughs) But that's quite an extraordinary film. I mean, I guess we're sort of slightly sticking with the sort of more provocative or provocation or like a sense of suggesting possibilities, which is um, Nighthawks by Ron Peck and Paul Hallam from the very end of the 1970s, which is a a film about a gay teacher at a state comprehensive school who has sort of keeping that his homosexuality to himself but great you know he becomes friends with a woman teacher and then sort of shares that information with her and then eventually the children in his class kind of find out about it but the film kind of cross cuts between his school life and then him basically going to kind of clubs in london it's shot in this quite um, simple, direct way. So it, it almost picking up, I think, on some of Laura Mulvey's um, writing with a lot of the cameras first person or just kind of showing the space. So there is this sense of who's looking at who and there is sort of stuff, I guess, about maybe the homosexual gays or maybe how homosexuals and gay men are you know, sort of seen in society. But that, and interestingly, I mean, I once said that that was the first kind of overtly gay British film, which it kind of isn't really because Sebastian by Derek Jarman came before and that's more like overtly homoerotic and so on. But Nighthawks is a first in the sense that I suppose it's about kind of everyday life of of gay men in British society and is very much exploring that. And it was developed, I understand, from years of um, interviews with men and kind of working out how to make that kind of film. And they approached um, Ron Peck and Paul Hallam, Paul Hallam who passed away only earlier this year. They um, had this massive campaign to raise money for it because there wasn't really a structure to make this kind of film. So they were writing to all these producers and directors. So there's a whole backstory to this film about which I know very little ultimately, but it's a sort of, has a sort of fascinating journey. And a lot of it, as I say, it's shot on location. So there's well, I think, you know, the 70s phase, I'm sorry to sort of, for mm-hmm. us that we're going back to it, but there's lots of stuff shot on the streets of London and people like just driving down roads and being in location. One level, that's a kind of a recourse to making a film where you don't have to hire a studio or, you know, set in the contemporary. So it's a kind of easy way of making a film. There is also that sense that, you know, you couldn't make those kind of films now in the sense that you have, you know, the actual shooting a location, you have to pay lots of money, like how London is mapped, understood has changed. London in the 70s was actually, population was going to decline, like it's a very different type of space. So the, this other stuff creeps into the film when you look at it, you know, mm. from the contemporary perspective. So it's quite, it's a very rich film and Paul Hallam, you know, main script writer, going on to work with Isaac Jude on Young Soul Rebels as well. So, mm. but at the same time, not a figure that's discussed a lot. So all these films have these rich themes and ways into them, and that you know that's part of what makes them fascinating. I think yeah. it's so interesting to hear you talk about the films, particularly of that era. That's you know those off-canon films of the seventies are slightly a, a blind spot for me. So it's really fascinating to hear you hear you talk about that. There's a pretty good book about that that we could recommend maybe later <laughs> in the <there>? show. <laughs> David, uh, actually, will you mention a lot about there about London on screen? There's a lot of London in this list, uh, and one jumped out for you in particular. Well, that's yeah, perfect segue. You almost like you teed me up. To talk about a film called Wonderland by Michael Winterbottom. When you're making these lists, there has to be some 
wiggle room for personal favourites in there. And, and this is a film that has, has kind of meant a lot to me personally for a long time since seeing seeing it originally at the, the Lux Cinema, if you RIP. <laughs> Winterbottom has had a kind of big career and he's done many you know he's one of these guys who you can't really pin down he does mm-hmm. lots of different things his documentaries he does melodramas and comedies and this for me was one i think it's his like seventh feature and for me it's easily his his the best thing he's ever done it's the kind of story about three sisters living in london in the like it's set in the it's what well, it takes place in the late 90s and it just deals with these relationship problems family problems dynamics mundane stuff but but heightened to this level of melodrama it's got this extraordinary score by michael nyman who is i mean one of the other things i guess you can kind of like segue onto quite sort of seamlessly from this talking about london on on film is like this film is kind of doubles as a sort of city symphony as well like the way it shoots london is just incredible it's like it's a kind of london for londoners film there's a scene on a night bus but it's not like packaged or there's no kind of cutaways for for the american audience there's very little like establishing shots. You know, you have like these these kind of beautiful skylines, but they're very kind of quite ordinary. And it kind of is a film that's kind of presenting London as very much in the kind of Manhattan, Woody Allen's Manhattan mm-hmm. sense as being this kind of extremely romantic location. Like there's a romance to the city and being involved in in the sort of the hum and of, of city life. There's also the film is about the contrast as well of like actually it could be extremely alienating and mm-hmm. you you know you can feel extremely alone being surrounded by people one of the most amazing f- scenes in it leading on from like talking about this idea of like shooting on the streets of london and how unique it feels now because so much of it is you know logistically so difficult there's a character played by ian hart who's like this kind of wide boy deadbeat scally dad who's taking his son from a broken marriage to to a football match on his day they go to a crystal palace match and it's actually filmed at an actual match and they're there in the seats and you know there are shots of spectators and there's shots Mm. of the match and he goes out into the bar and i was just like almost in tears at this scene because it's it's like wow I, i can't remember any film that where I've actually seen a football match where it feels like someone's just been allowed to f- take a camera in mm-hmm. and film it. Everything is so wrapped up in like rights and TV and images mm-hmm. and that feels like a kind of stolen scene, never before and never since kind of thing. And maybe I'm not seeing those kind of films that, that film inside football stadiums, but I think it all captures the ethos of this film of like, you know, it's capturing these little kind of moments and spaces and places and mm-hmm. buildings and interiors and exteriors that you just sort of like, they're kind of common but made to feel kind of alienating. Right. So. Well, there's, there's this point, isn't it, when he goes on a blind date and meets Gina McKee and they know each other and then they realise they're going on a date together. Yeah. Mm. And it's in this bar, I think, in Camden. You know, I lived around there and so you, I you know, know that place and they're, they're having this chance, they don't expect to meet each other and they're like, oh, and I know that place too. And it, I don't know, it's sort of, yeah, you get a sense of this bigger London and that's your location. So. I, I think you get a sense that it's a film and I think this is something that you maybe don't get in quite a lot of films set in in, in London and real and just on on locations is like there's a really real deep personal connection between the makers and the and mm. the and the and the landscape like like Winterbottom knows all these places he's been to all these places he films them in a way that is very that feels very familiar and I think the film almost is about that connection between like an artist and a landscape you got to have the film itself as almost like the kind of not the icing on top but it's like you know it's, I just find that element of the film very moving. 
Michael Winterbottom's Wonderland there. Rowan, back to you. I briefly want to mention Peter Strickland's Duke of Burgundy, um, ah. which is, in, in fact, probably one of my favourite films on, on this whole list and is such uh, the sort of perfect distillation of all of his slightly perverse and kind of erotic, mucky-minded preoccupations. And I think in the way that it explores this very, very specific S&M relationship between these two women, it manages to say something so universal about the way power structures work within relationships and the way people behave towards each other in in, in relationships and, you know, punish each other or shut down. And, And I love the fact that within something that feels so specific... It was able to do something that felt so so profound mm. and points to something really a real human truth about the way we behave mm. in relationships. And I think in all of his body of work, I think this is my favourite. Yeah, you talk about a filmmaker who very much is coming from a European sensibility. He's you know, he couldn't be more European in terms of shooting out there, using actors from the continent. And yeah, and he's living he's ba- out there. He's yeah. based in Hungary, yeah. yeah. Well, we've only just scratched the surface of the top 100 here. Plenty more films to look at if you do pick up the magazine, which is on newsstands now. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to delve a little deeper into some of these themes. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So, Will, let's talk quickly about The Bodies Beneath. We've spoken about how this list is sort of an alternative canon, looking at films that aren't the usual ones put in in these lists. That's exactly what you're doing in The Bodies Beneath. You're talking about, I'm quoting from the instruction here, presenting important aspects on an incompletely mapped moving image landscape. So please tell us more about that, that goal, that life goal you've given yourself. Well, I think both cinema and television are enormous fields and the the list that we've just been talking about is kind of providing paths into that. And one of the things that interested us and we were doing it was 
almost I guess we you know we both work in a major film archive and we're discovering things and realize that lots of stuff hadn't either hadn't really been hardly seen at all or hadn't been seen for you know a long long time so initially this sort of comes out of a strand that we ran at BFI Southbank called The Flipside and we began you know going back to London this film Primitive London which we had both sort of come across almost through like the the sort of crumbs that films sometimes leave when their life ends and then, you know, they're no longer um, in the cinema and maybe they haven't been released on DVD or VHS. And, you know, certain types of films, when they're made, they so speak to that time that they lose traction after that point. Mm. So so Primitive London is this kind of Mondo-esque, sensational documentary about London from 1965. And it's an interesting one because it's sort of this cusp between the kind of grey, run-down London after the war and then the swinging London, which is about to erupt. So we both wanted to see this film and we were able to put it on at BFI Southbank. And then through that, we kind of started to uncover these other links to other films mm-hmm. and start to think, you know, at that point, a lot of kind of more cult and unusual films hadn't really come out on DVD or Blu-ray. And so it really felt... We talked earlier about other kind of greatest 100 British films lists. That that kind of discourse really did dominate. And I feel like we're in quite a different time now and there's the, the, the conversation is much more varied, like the one we're having having now. But something that fascinated us was that films, yeah, that really resonated at the time. Mm-hmm. A lot of people said that they haven't seen many films and TV programmes, and which hopefully is a good thing, and that means they've got something to discover. But, you know, it's not that there aren't well-known people. In this. Mm-hmm. So there's Ray Davies from The Kinks, a television play that he made um, called Star Maker, where he, he imagines himself as almost like a Reginald Perrin character where he's a sort of mundane, grey, suburban guy and what it means to live there. And the kinks play songs in the television studio. It's happened. So that kind of just disappeared. But it's obviously Ray Davis is a very well-known performing musician. I think with the book, we... You know, part of it was not sort of saying that these well-known films aren't as good as you think they are and these other films are better. It's about extending the map Mm -hmm. and shining the light on things that maybe don't get so much attention. Almost pointing out that the canonical films, they tend historically, they would maybe get film restorations, get a kind of lot of care and attention lavished on them. And that perpetuates the kind of visibility and the status which they acquire, whereas other films don't get that level of treatment. So there's kind of a privileging that happens historically. Mm -hmm. So that was something we wanted to unpick a bit. We stretched the field a bit further, so wrote a piece about this film Felix by Anna Ambrose that was made through the BFI in 1979. has Cozy Fanny Tutti from Throbbing Gristle in it, you know, some kind of... Steve Dwoskin was a cameraman for part of it, whose name appears on the Little White Lies list. These kind of hooks that go in Mm. and, again, sort of point out in other directions. And yet this film, perhaps because she died of breast cancer when she was 40, like Anna Ambrose is not a a well-known filmmaker. I don't know why. I've read about this film. I couldn't tell you when it was last screened. So we haven't screened it. It was on television. Jamie Isaacs, who was the head of Channel 4, was a big fan of hers commissioned her to make other films. There's a film about Handel, On a Profit and Pleasure, which has Hugh Grant's very first role on screen that she was. So you've got through Anne Ambrose, you've got Cozy Fanny Tutti from Throwing Gristle and Hugh Grant almost <laughs> meeting. So that, I think it's that sort of yeah. make bridging these connections and trying to show wider sense of what British film and television culture is is kind of was the goal of it and also some of these films we don't like you know it's mm-hmm. not like oh they're quite good or this is really good or you know it's about like having a conversation yeah. and films and tv programs there might just be like a 10 minute bit in it that's like amazing or maybe not amazing just really interesting and strange mm-hmm. that we're going to talk about so i was aware that when we did this there is this kind of history almost pre-internet of like list books where things are not mapped so you might buy like i don't know a book about horror films with short 
sort of entries on what's and that you know those kind of books are kind of arguably redundant now with the internet you don't you know they're sort of historical artifacts in themselves but you know we we look at over 40 films um, and tv programs uh, with themes but they're actually each piece is about two to three thousand words long so it's a chance to look at it in depth and really unpick these these connections such a testament to the role of film archives and film archivists because the tendency with canons and great lists top 100s top 1000s and so on is that it feels like it's almost a closed book a finished story these are the only films you need to watch mm. and even with restorations anniversary releases and so on it feels like we know what films came out in 1969 because we've got all these 50th anniversary releases but mm. actually the the amount of films and TV content as well that have been mm. creating at that time you will never really get to the bottom mm. of it and that's the job of sifting through mm. all these reels that are mm. housed so in a warehouse somewhere outside mm. London right yeah and I think TV in many ways is the real undiscovered country because you know I guess after home video, a lot of stuff has gone onto YouTube, but mm -hmm. there's so much stuff, which makes the British context perhaps distinct from elsewhere in the world, is that, you know, up until like the early 80s, you had basically three channels on television and whatever was showing at your local cinema. And that's like your potential like menu for film. And so that's why these periods like the 70s, when these kind of radical provocations were happening, are kind of quite interesting because the bandwidth is so narrow. Mm. So it's like, what can you actually do and who's going to see this stuff within that? So in many ways, TV is like the undiscovered country of British moving image culture. Not as glamorous or sensational necessarily uh -huh, yeah. as films and things, but, you know, there's a lot of staff and lots of films referenced in this book, but there's a hundred other books mm -hmm. of a similar vein and more beyond that. It's a really terrific book and so readable as well. It's not, you know, it's not an academic or fusty sort of thing. It's really exciting to discover some of these weird and wonderful films and TV series. There's, there's a chapter on there on Colin Baker's yeah. controversial run on Doctor Who. I'm not a Doctor Who viewer, but it's actually making me think maybe I'll go and well, it's, dive in. I feel, yeah, I think someone, the proofreader, liked a lot of stuff we were writing about, even knew some of the films and stuff, and, was like, and he... That was the one bit that he was like, mm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm really, I like what you're doing, but like that's, I don't know, that's maybe going too far. But well, know. no, no, there's this huge undiscovered country of the past, but also there's the the other undiscovered country of the future, and that's Rowan. That's what the cutting edge of what's coming up. That's what you're working on, and it feels that in this list, what I love about the list you put together, David, is you don't give short shrift to recent films. You go all the way up to Ray and Liz, which was released earlier this year, and it feels that. There is this new wave of British voices and talent, the five particular voices you talked about earlier, Rowan. So could you say something about where we're at and what we're looking at and what the future may look like? I think those five women I, I mentioned earlier, you know, you would no longer consider Carol Morley and um, and Lynn Ramsey and Andrew Arnold as new talent. They are now at the forefront of those of the sort of the most exciting names coming mm. out of the UK. And you can throw in also Andrew Haig and Steve McQueen. But I think what is happening, it was interesting to see Lady Macbeth on that list from 2016. And I think that film marks a particular turning point or a particular sort of watershed moment around new talent in, in in the UK. You know, they've always been exciting debuts coming out of the UK that announced new voices and, you know, and this list is is built on, on so many of those names. But I think Lady Macbeth is a film that was made on a very a very small budget, made through a um new talent development scheme that's supported by the BBC and, and, and the BFI. And it was probably the first of those kinds of films, apart from Lilting, which was made through a different a different talent scheme. That's Hong Kao's debut that 
uh, debuted in Sundance a couple of years back. But Lady Macbeth was something that really announced a sort of new generation of British talent on the international stage. And since then, you've seen films like Apostasy, mm. uh, Beast, The Leveling, God's Own Country. And it feels like there's this wave of new names coming through that are really positioning themselves on part of the sort of the global consciousness. And I think there are several reasons for that. I think partly it's a little bit around wider changes in the industry landscape at the moment to do with Netflix and Amazon and this sort of shifting platform debate and which means that some of the public funders in the UK are focusing more on new on new mm. talent. I think the issue of public funding is a really interesting one and probably something, you know, I should mention the fact that I used to work at the BBC and so I'm fully, <laughs> sort of fully paid up a fan of, of the public funding system. But we are incredibly lucky in the UK to have a system of public funding for, mm-hmm. for films, which does not exist in every country, you know, most notably doesn't exist in the States. You know, we have the BFI, BBC and Film 4 predominantly and then of course also Screen Scotland, Wales, the the regional funders as well as you know Screen Ireland, Northern Ireland Screen that the UK works very closely with as well and public funders are able to support and champion and nurture new talent in a way that's entirely free of market concerns Mm -hmm. and it means they're able to provide a space where new talent can try new things can possibly fail can develop their voices and really they they can provide a, a sort of incubator that in other countries you don't have that privilege you don't have that privilege as much and I think Lady Macbeth really does mark a sort of change in some of the policies mm. from our big public funders in terms of focusing on on new talent mm. I mean that's just a sort of a kind of finger in the air mark and, and Lady Macbeth wasn't sort of hasn't been born out of those new policies or it didn't mark a turning mm. point but it's the film that you can point to to go oh I sort of I'm starting right. to see that shift In your role with the British Council, where you're presenting these British films to international festival programmers, what are the qualities that they come to the UK film ministry for? Are there certain qualities or characteristics? I think, you know, certainly there's a sense from the international festival circuit that British cinema is an exciting space. And that list of films that have been premiering at festivals over the last few years, and that's not even to mention, of course, the the sort of the bigger, more established names. What's most exciting and what programmers find most exciting is that, you know, there was once a time when you might come to to the UK to look for or expect to find, you know, social realism Mm. or Mm -hmm. period drama. And that's not really the case anymore. I think a lot of the films that are coming out at the moment, uh, you know, not just in the UK, actually, sort of more more broadly, feel really authored, really distinctive. A lot of them are sort of playing with genre in quite an interesting way. And I think that's partly to do with the fact that some of the existing hierarchy, well, in fact, all of the existing hierarchies between film and television have, have broken down. And I think the bar for whether something gets to be a film rather than existing in a different medium, you know, rather than being being television, is higher than ever. And, you know, getting funding is harder, getting distribution is harder, which means that it really encourages a very clear sort of cinematic vision. And often genre is a place that you can sort of, you can explore that. Mm-hmm. But I think it does mean that the, that the sort of 
in the longer term, I think the bar for the kind of work that comes out of the UK, the kind of films that get made, will be higher. And I, and I think in the longer term, it'll mean a really sort of robust and quite exciting national cinema. Mm. Rather than, I think it's it's a time when everyone's sort of like, oh, there's a lot of uncertainty, every, there's a lot of disruption. Uh, no one's quite sure what the landscape will look like next year, let alone in five years' time. But I do think actually the sort of the competition for audiences, the competition for eyeballs will mean that there will be a sort of a robustness around around what gets made that will be incredibly exciting. Yeah, the films will keep coming, fingers crossed. They will, absolutely, absolutely. And the kind of talent that's coming out of the UK at the moment is really exciting. Mm-hmm. And, and also the kind of talent that's still very much at a grassroots stage. Mm-hmm. You know, the BFI are really, really leaning in, into that space with their regional talent scouts. Mm-hmm. All of the public funders are, are looking towards developing new talent in, in, in one way or another. It feels like a really, really exciting space. You know, you do another version of this list in 10 years' time with a whole crop of, of other really exciting films on there. you better get working on it, David. Keep tabulating. <laughs> Any final comments for a wrap-up? It's fascinating to hear what, you know, what's currently happening in the British film industry and, like, you know, I'm trying to think of people who exist even slightly outside of that kind of almost like public funding arena. Like, one of my favourite directors, uh, Ben Rivers, um, he, he's kind of existed on the margins but he's someone who's existed on the margins for so long and you know that's a relative term i would argue (laughs) i think if you're talking to us filmmakers they would say that he was not on the margins oh well yeah yeah, that's a relative that's a relative i guess yeah relative to the to the british film industry in and and the kind of traditional roots of of distribution and, and exhibition he is like someone who i see as sort of flying the flag at you know his films travel all over the world his life is pretty much traveling with his films going to festivals getting funding through festivals making films where he's going and and he he did have bfi funding before um, or some for but he's interesting because he moves between these different contexts mm. and had his you know and he's able to have a, a kind of cinema career of sorts internationally in the film festival circuit and is kind of well known in that context but then also has a gallery and is selling work to major international museums so he, he's really interesting in that sense and I think the artist film scene in the UK now is, is astonishing mm. there's mm-hmm. so much stuff going on which is sort of a slightly different kind of conversation but I feel like that is really where like the creative stuff is really happening in this country right. at the moment. A- absolutely I mean it's you know I, I was sort of focusing quite clearly on, mm. on the sort of public funding space but there is so much more beyond that and then of course once you get into sort of artist moving image work mm. or or VR or sort of more kind of work that's sort of crossing creative boundaries it's a really it's a really exciting space and also you know going back to what you were saying earlier Will about TV being such a, a such a rich space historically it's now a place where so many of our most interesting filmmakers are working in TV Andrew Arnold Lenny Abrams and Andrew Haig mm-hmm. that sort of hierarchy between the two mediums has has gone and I think it means that filmmakers can sort of stretch themselves and and their storytelling muscles in a way that feels really um really invigorating i suppose it's the broadening of the bandwidth you mentioned earlier will where in up until the early 80s you'd have a handful of tv channels and then just what's on at the cinema whereas now you have all these streaming platforms and it's created just a glut of content but also little micro niches where in this list we'd have artists moving images and shorts and yeah. animation all butting up against each other because yeah. they may be on Channel 4 in the 80s. Yeah. Whereas now, 
you'd have to go out of your way to be within the world for the artist's moving image space, I wonder. Previous film and TV culture is enormous, but it almost that feels somehow more approachable to map than what's going on now. Maybe mm. just because we can understand the context for it as well and they are and you know, we can receive them as the provocations of what we what can be done, but also as artifacts. Whereas yeah, mapping really what's going on now is like very challenging. And I think there has been tendencies to think of certain types of alternative film production to be moving into the gallery and you know these kind of lines being drawn but I feel like those lines are kind of being kind of rubbed out or dissolving again and it's actually quite hard sometimes to place context for certain type of thing which is partly because of things like YouTube as well where you get these like in between spaces where stuff is crossing I mean in a way it's an astonishing time and really mapping what's What's happening is is a ch- is like exciting challenge. Mm. You have it your... all feels so porous, mm-hmm. but I th- I think I, I agree. I think that feels really unknowable and slightly, yeah. We're sort of we're kind of all moving forward into into a space that feels completely new, but but also really really exciting. Mm-hmm. Cinephilia isn't weird anymore. Is the other thing. Mm. So this is maybe going to a new no, topic, no, no, but no. but I feel like this. You know, these books, these lists, all yeah. this. It's like a certain. You know, I guess we're talking. I was saying earlier about pre sort of Greenaway and John. It's a certain type of audience, like cinephilia being this kind of like niche, almost like hobbyist kind of thing. And I'm sure we all identify with that some way and have been that kind of person story. Whereas like, now I feel like it's not called cinephilia, but cinephilia is alive and well. And this difficulty of mapping everything that's going on is that lots of people interested because they, it's understood that it's like a powerful cultural form that impacts on our lives and touches on social issues and is like a politically relevant way of having a conversation. So it's like a very... And I guess calling it cinephilia is too reductive mm. because you know, once you start making those connections, but I, I find that that in itself is kind of exciting. Yeah, what an exciting time, eh? And what a potentially overwhelming point to end this podcast Indeed. on. We start with just these 100 films, and now we have the entirety of moving image history, <laughs> yeah, so. past, present, and future, to try and tabulate. <laughs> That's something for your follow-up to the bodies beneath. <laughs> I'll just, just say that on that point that, you, you know, the films in this list, you, they're all viewable. They're all available on some medium or, or other, and like you know, maybe ten, fifteen years ago, maybe less than half would have been mm-hmm. like out there. So, as you say, the, there's that, an the, appetite for yeah, there's an well. appetite for it, and and this the, this kind of very sort of antiquated notion of cinephilia as a sort of like snobby kind of someone who enjoys films more than the kind of layperson is just it doesn't really exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So. So you too can be a cinephile, listeners, if you want to be. Will, so The Bodies Beneath is out now in in all good bookshops. It is, yeah, directly from the publisher, Stranger Tracks Press, Mm -hmm. also on Amazon, um, in foils. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can pick it up in various places. Brilliant. Yeah. And Rowan, how can people catch up with you or see what you're doing? I'm on Twitter, at Rowan Woods. Find me there. David, anything from The Good Ship Little White Lies before we sign off? Oh, no, no, no. Nothing more from me. (laughs) (laughs) Enough of your voice today, David. But thank you, Rowan, David, Will, for joining me today. I'm Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.